Welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast. Episode 16, The Indestructible Spirit. When Jed Kare came to power, the Egyptian political landscape was a very different entity than it had been 60 years earlier. The kingdom was now governed by officials drawn from the elite families, whose power and wealth had increased enough that they were building their own lavish tombs and recording their achievements. In the reign of Neusarei, these developments had really crystallized, and the new king could probably have sat back and enjoyed the fruits of a prosperous kingdom without worrying too much about reformation. But Jedkare enacted several more shake-ups to the kingdom's government structure. To begin with, he enacted a general reorganization of many administrative offices. Instead of allowing regions of the kingdom to be overseen by various men, who dealt with several responsibilities at once, Jedkare made each position responsible for one job at a time. This specialization had two effects. Firstly, it made the various jobs much easier for one man to tackle, and secondly, it made the administrators less likely to gather too much power into their own hands. When there were more officials scattered throughout the kingdom, any single individual was less important than the whole, and the power of each person was restricted. To give an example of this, let's turn very briefly to the island of Elephantini, a small community at the southernmost border of Egypt, which served as a trading station and a guard post against raids from Nubian tribes. By the 5th dynasty, Elephantini had developed into a small but valuable administrative and military outpost. Before Neusere, it was overseen by a small group dominated by an overseer. After Neusere, up to three or more officials were in residence at once. One acted as a troop commander, the other acted as an overseer of administrative documents, and the third acted as the general overseer of the region itself. The overseer of Elephantini looked after the whole island on a general level, but he now relied on the overseer of scribes and the overseer of troops to enact the royal policies. In other words, where before there had been one man taking care of everything, after Neusere, there were three or more working in specialized roles. The whole system was divided, both to minimize the burden of service and the opportunity for any man to gain more authority than he should have. In the end, the state was stronger for this. But there is an old saying which says, We often give our enemies the means of our own destruction. In other words, the reformation of the Egyptian state contained the seeds of its own failure. We've spent the last three episodes or so looking at some of these seeds. The wealth and status of the elites was growing slowly but surely. Along with that came the ability to start making more demands on the royal household. There is even some suggestion that Jed Kare had to contend with some of these issues during his own lifetime. A pyramid complex established near to his tomb was dedicated to his queen, whose name we have now lost. I won't go into too much detail on it, because most pyramid complexes are essentially the same, but I will say that this was far and away the largest pyramid ever established for a royal woman. 
So, Jed Kaure's wife must have been someone of extreme importance in her lifetime. The most common theory put forward is that Jed Kaure was actually not a royal prince, and that he married into the royal family through this anonymous woman. In that situation, you can bet that the princess turned queen, made it a condition of their arrangement that she be buried with all the splendour required by her position. Another theory is that Jed Kaure was a prince, and that when he married this woman, she brought with her a sizable contingent of elite families ready to support the new king. Sort of a union of two houses thing, but for an entire country. We don't yet know which one of these was the case, but it is clear that Jed Kaure depended on his queen for a large part of his social prestige and authority. She was not his subordinate, and probably wielded a lot of influence in the court. But despite this, this was a time when the king was making great pains to reduce the power of the officials and centralise authority under himself, mostly by increasing the number of jobs available to the elites at any one time. So Jed Kare's reign can be seen as a consolidation, when the king strengthened his personal authority by reducing everyone else's. At the same time, he refocused the temples towards the royal cult, and abandoned the construction of sun temples. You'll remember that since the reign of Userkaf, the Egyptian kings had been building sun temples in the royal necropolis. These sun temples were institutions dedicated to the sun god, with a secondary focus on venerating the king as the son of Atum Re. There were six sun temples established in all, and the process came to an end when Jed Kare took the throne. He decided not to establish a new one in the necropolis, preferring to simply maintain the pre-existing temples, and focus all his attention on his pyramid complex. The reasons for this will probably be debated for a long time, but they seem to have had to do with the rise of the god Osiris. When I introduced him in episode 10, Osiris was a minor but favoured deity who served as a judge of the dead. By the time of Jed Kare, the god had increased in prominence, to the point that a deceased king was thought to transform into Osiris when he reached the afterlife. For the past 60 years of our story, Osiris has been kicking around in the underworld, slowly gaining more and more fame as the king and judge of the dead. His death at the hands of Set, and his resurrection at the hands of Isis, are now thought to be linked with the annual inundation, and the renewal of crops every year. Jed Kare seems to have been fond of Osiris on a theological level. When he abandoned the use of sun temples in the royal necropolis, it was because the incorporation of Osiris into the royal cult made it less necessary for each king to have his own sun temple. In other words, since the king was going to be transformed into Osiris after death, a sun temple was less important for the maintenance of his soul. Whether they were important or not, Jed Kare certainly achieved enough in his lifetime that he was probably assured of a very great position in the afterlife. In fact, he's the second king of the dynasty to be able to celebrate a Sed festival. The Sed festival 
was a ritual celebration of the king's life when he reached his 30th year on the throne. As you can imagine, they're a comparative rarity in Egyptian history. And the first of the entire dynasty was Neusere, who had celebrated it just a couple of decades beforehand. It's pretty likely then that the Egyptians of this period viewed the Middle Fifth Dynasty as a time when the gods particularly favoured the royal household. For the elites, this would have been because they were now admitted to the highest offices in the land, and members of the prominent families were marrying into the royal household. For the royal family, the gods' favour certainly came because of their extensive reorganisation of the kingdom, and the special emphasis they had been placing on sun temples and pyramids during the period. Neusere had completed three royal pyramids beside his own, and Jed Kare's move back to Saqqara brought him back in touch with the great ancestors of the past, especially Netjediket Joza, the builder of the Steppe Pyramid. So the said festival was a just reward for all his endeavours, and since long reigns tend to encourage stability within a kingdom, we can be reasonably confident that Egypt at this point is in a pretty good state. Times were good for Jed Kare, and for the kingdom as a whole, but all things must end, and the king died about a decade after his first said festival. He was 55 years old, and had ruled Egypt for approximately 40 years. In his reign, Jed Kare had accomplished many splendid things. Aside from the general reorganisation and religious policies we just discussed, there were mining expeditions sent to the Sinai Peninsula, bringing back turquoise and copper. Egyptian trading ships had sailed north to the town of Byblos on the Phoenician coast, bringing back the cedar wood that Egyptian kings prized above all other timbers. Then, to imitate his great predecessor Sahure, Jed Kare arranged another expedition to Punt. This probably wasn't as large as the one under Sahure, and certainly not recorded in such splendour, but it was nevertheless a great achievement for the Egyptian people, and for Jed Kare specifically. But eventually, the king journeyed into the west, there he was united with Osiris. His son, Unas, now takes the throne. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. The passage I'm about to read for you 
comes from a prayer on the walls of a royal burial chamber in the last years of the 5th dynasty. It is part of a corpus known as the Pyramid Texts, labelled Utterance Number 217. Quote, Osiris and Isis, go and declare to the gods of Egypt and their spirits. Unus has come indeed, as a spirit who knows not destruction. Praiseworthy is he, the lord of the Nile flood. Praise him, spirits who are in the waters. Whomever Unas wills to live, he indeed shall live. Whomever Unas wills to die, he indeed shall die. It seems pretty standard stuff for a divine monarchy. The king claims awesome, arbitrary powers over life and death. Gods and spirits alike praise his appearance, and the king's immortal soul transcends mortality, becoming indestructible. Underlying the text, however, is the sense that Unas may not have been a very nice chap. He claims almost dictatorial authority over life and death, and the power to influence the spirits who inhabit the very waters of the Nile. Another prayer takes this idea even further. Utterances 273 and 274. Quote, The sky descends, and the stars darken. The vaults quiver, the bones of the earth tremble. The planets stand still at seeing Unas rise as a power. A god who lives on his fathers, who feeds on his mothers. Unas is the master of cunning, whose mother knows not his name. Unas's glory is in heaven. His power is in light land. He is like Atum Re, his father. And though Atum's son, Unas is stronger than he. There's not a lot of humility in this guy. He challenges his divine father, beating his chest in some kind of megalomaniacal posturing. He claims to have mastered the arts of cunning and secrecy, and implies that his very ascension somehow causes the skies and heavens to thunder and rain. You have to wonder, how much did Unas seriously believe this? Is he just talking himself up as a big shot, or did the king genuinely believe that he had the power to challenge the gods themselves? It's hard to say, because the pyramid texts of Unas get into some seriously weird but awesome passages. Listen to this quote, also from utterances 273 and 274. Quote, Unas is the one who eats men, who feeds on gods. It is the horn grasper who lassoes them for Unas. It is the Uraeus serpent who guards them, holds them. It is the tree dweller who binds them for Unas. It is Konsu, the slayer of lords, who cuts their throats for Unas, and who tears out their entrails for him. It is Shesmu who carves them up for Unas, who cooks meals of them in his dinner pots. Unas eats their magic and swallows their spirits. Their elders are his morning meal, their middle ones are his evening meal, their children are his night meal and the oldest males and females are used for his fuel. The great ones in the northern sky light a fire for him. 
and for the pot's contents, using the thighs of the elderly. The sky-dwellers serve Unas, and the pots are scraped with the legs of their women. Anyone who ever said Egyptian literature was dull had not heard of Unas's cannibal hymn. It is infamous in Egyptological circles, and usually one of the first texts that excited undergraduates asked to translate when they learn hieroglyphs. It is also the sort of text, kind of like the works of Niccolò Machiavelli, that is very, very easy to misunderstand. Texts like this are fun to read, but encourage people to simply enjoy them as salacious writing, without really delving into what the hell the Egyptians are actually talking about. Did Unas practice cannibalism? Probably not. Did Unas claim divine powers? Certainly. Did Unas genuinely believe that his authority on earth was so strong that he could challenge gods, feed on spirits, and lay waste to the heavens? Well, that's what we're going to find out. The royal cult at the end of the 5th dynasty emphasized the king's identity as a son of Atum Re, the sun god, who, for my confused listeners, is the same god as Re or Ra that I reference elsewhere. Within this overarching mythology, however, were more specific ideas that sort of rose and fell in prominence over time. During the late Old Kingdom, which we are now entering, Osiris, the king of the underworld, has attained a central role in the myth of the afterlife. Osiris's son, Horus, was the god with whom the kings of Egypt most closely identified. They were known in their lifetimes as the Golden Horus, and often referred to simply as Horus, instead of using their personal names. Other deities gained a promotion in tandem with Osiris and his wife Isis. The jackal-headed Anubis had long been a staple of funerary iconography, but his role in the myth of Osiris meant that items dedicated to Anubis increase in number during this era. Small carved pots and statuary make a note of the god Yenpu of the Necropolis, the ancient name of Anubis. Stelae carved for elite patrons invoke the following formula. An offering which the king gives, and which Anubis, lord of the necropolis, first of the divine court, gives. This is known as the Hetep di Nesu formula, the Egyptian for an offering which the king gives. An extremely common formula, the Hetep di Nesu, is used on items and in contexts where the deceased probably attained some degree of royal funding or permission to erect their monument. As a result, most funerary monuments preserve the eternal connection between king and gods, which forms the absolute core of Egyptian ideologies in this period. So from this, we know that Unas was viewed by his subjects as little short of a god in his own right. He had intimate connections to the king of the underworld, Osiris and its guardian, the jackal Anubis. It was important for Unus, and kings in general, to act as intermediaries between humanity and the divine realm, 
contributing to the construction of tombs and the creation of small monuments as a way of ensuring his people attained a good afterlife. At what point, though, does this really translate into an exaggerated sense of divine power, and some sort of concept that the king could actually challenge gods and consume their energy? By way of answering this question, let me read to you another passage from Unus's pyramid texts. Quote, O Atum Re, this Unus has come to you as a spirit who knows not destruction. As lord of the destiny of the ends of the earth, your son has come to you, this Unus has come to you. You will travel the firmament, united in darkness, and you will rise on the horizon, in the place where you are radiant. O Atum Re, your son has come to you, Unas has come to you. Cause him to ascend to you, and clasp him to yourself in your embrace. For he is your son, the son of your body for all eternity. Now that doesn't sound so bad. In fact, it sounds a lot like the hymns used in churches today. Replace Unas with Jesus, and you'd have a text that wouldn't raise many eyebrows. The pyramid text of Unas sort of swing between joyous celebrations of the divine and strange dark passages of cannibalism and destruction. It's almost as though the Egyptian afterlife has two faces, a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde situation, where on the one hand, the gods love you and want to protect you and carry you with them in their journey. On the other, they're dangerous entities who should be captured and slain, torn down from their heavenly seats, in order to satisfy your, that is, Unus's, needs. You're probably wondering what to make of this. Now, modern scholars have struggled with the pyramid texts for many reasons, but the most important of these is that we actually have no idea when they were invented. The pyramid texts appear in the Pyramid of Unus, fully formed and conceived with no evidence of the process by which they were created. There's nothing available in the archaeological or documentary record that even comes close to appearing like a nascent or proto-form of these texts. It's clear from the language used in the texts that they are very old, probably much older than the 5th dynasty. Certain aspects of the language are, by later Egyptian standards, redundant, suggesting that they're sort of fossilized, as in, kind of recited on memory without ever really changing the language. For language experts reading the pyramid texts, certain phrases and wordings leap out as archaic and sort of antiquated, kind of like reading Geoffrey Chaucer or Shakespeare today. Since the Egyptian language was incredibly dynamic and developed a lot over time, these little oddities give Egyptologists the sense that we're dealing with a set of texts which are far older than their first appearance. They may even predate the Third Dynasty, which is sort of the general time we assume the kings began to incorporate concepts like this into their funerary monuments, but we really have no idea. These could actually be the sort of prehistorical ideas of what godship was. It's impossible to prove when the Egyptians first conceived of these hymns, 
but the ideas should be viewed in the context of an early human society. The importance of food as a source of energy has divine connotations, and the reason Unus's hymns talk about cannibalism is probably an extension of this idea. By consuming the divine energy of the gods, Unus strengthens his own magic and becomes a god himself. I'm going to take a stand and suggest that Unus was almost certainly not a cannibal. The idea of consuming gods and spirits is an archaic leftover, intended to cover as many bases as possible when the king has to go into the afterlife. On the one hand, you have hymns that talk about the king as the son of Atum Re, embraced by the god and taken with him on his journey through the sky. Then on the other, you have Unas slaying gods and eating their flesh, taking their power for himself. But really, we should look at these as two sides of the same coin, kind of a divine insurance policy. It's almost as if the Egyptians are saying, hey, we're not 100% sure the gods actually are benevolent, so just in case they get violent when the king reaches the afterlife, we'll empower him to defeat them and take his rightful place in the stars. So we have to think of these violent prayers in the context of a very different time, a world where certainties about the gods did not exist. For these people, the destructiveness of nature itself was essentially proof that divine beings could be violent. So why wouldn't you try to give the king as many protections as possible? For that reason, I've called the cannibal hymn Unus's Insurance Policy. It's an incredibly interesting one, but it's insurance nonetheless. We are not supposed to take it literally. Unus's tomb at Saqqara, near the steppe pyramid, was a small pyramid that has crumbled badly and survives as little more than a mound. It's not a very memorable monument in itself, and indeed, Unus is actually a fairly minor king. But because he had these pyramid texts inscribed into the burial chamber, he attains a level of fame far outstripping his actual accomplishments in life. The pyramid is also notable for a very interesting scene carved into the causeway. On a small block which is now quite damaged, three nomads, which we call Bedouin, are depicted. They are, to put it gently, emaciated and starving. Their ribs stick out, their limbs are long and gangly, and they reach forward begging for food. I've placed an image of these on the website. Now, anyone seeing that and thinking of the cannibal hymn might be forgiven for thinking that Unas was a bit of a tyrant who liked to torture people. But the scene probably depicts a group of refugees approaching the Egyptians from an area that had been hit by drought. Evidently they were starving and in need of shelter, and in such a bad state that the news actually reached the king, and was somehow worthy of commemoration. In a land where the king was about to reach his 30th year on the throne, like Jedkare and Neusere, scenes of starving foreigners must have seemed like proof that the gods favoured Egypt above all other kingdoms. 
If that wasn't confirmation of the insurance policy's great success, I don't know what is. Unus died in his 30th year on the throne, probably not long after his first said festival. With his death, the 5th dynasty comes to an end. The king was not survived by a son, and his daughter was married to an elite nobleman named Teti, who becomes the next king. At this point, historians generally place a transition between the 5th and 6th dynasties. I will begin the 6th dynasty next week, but I want to say a small word in memoriam and summary of the 5th dynasty. When Usurkar first took power, the 4th dynasty had faltered and almost ground to a halt. Under the oversight of Kenti Kaus I, the great royal mother, King Usurkar had revived the administration and set in motion some major changes to the government and religion that brought renewed prosperity to the realm. Over the long reign of Sahure, Egyptian ships had penetrated down to Ethiopia, bringing back luxurious wealth and goods for the king. The sun temples, built by the first six kings of the dynasty, had immortalized Egyptian solar worship in stone, complementing the small but elegant pyramids now favored by the ruling household. After Sahure, King Nefer-Irkare had kept the ship on course without making any radical changes. His son Ra-Neferef had died after just a few years, putting the dynasty into a temporary crisis. But then another royal woman, Kenti Kaus II, came to power overseeing her son Niusere. The dynasty was stabilized under Niusere, and a general reformation of the state was begun. This reformation coincided with a general rise in the visibility of the elites. As the dynasty organized the kingdom, the elite families came to prominence in a way they never had before. As they did so, they established tombs and monuments that serve as some of the strongest evidence we've yet seen for daily life on the Nile. As they developed their own social identity, the nobility began to write commentaries on good and moral behavior, resulting in our first insights into their true character. Next episode, we enter the Sixth Dynasty, and examine some of these stories from more and more angles. The writings of Tahotep and Kargemni are our next topic, as we continue the Egyptian History Podcast. Hello folks, Dominic here, with a short epilogue. In this episode, we introduced the Pyramid Texts, a magnificent corpus of hieroglyphs which document religious beliefs at the end of the 5th dynasty. I've provided some translations through this episode, but you may be wondering, how did these texts sound in ancient Egyptian? One idea comes from the YouTuber Orlando Mazzabotta, who has done a simple reading of the Cannibal Hymn. This is available on YouTube, but Orlando generously allowed me to use a portion of it in the podcast. You may find Orlando's rendering slightly sinister. I think he takes the cannibal aspect theatrically and decides to roll with that. It does result in a wonderful ambiance. As you listen, see if you can find Orlando's references to King Unas, which he pronounces as Wanyas. 
Here is Orlando's rendering of the Cannibal Hymn. If you would like to hear the full rendering by Orlando Metzabotta, follow the link in the episode description. That's all from me. I hope you have a wonderful week. I'll see you soon. The History of Egypt podcast is supported by you, the listeners. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. If you would like to support the show directly and help me pay for research materials and food, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers get access to special perks like early episode releases, supplementary notes and photo materials, early or exclusive access to YouTube videos, and an ad-free experience. For as little as five US dollars per month, you can enjoy the special edition of the podcast. If you are interested, follow the link in the episode description, or go to patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. That's patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you for listening. May the great gods bless your week.